Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Dr. Ram Morgan, a postdoctoral researcher on the project and an oral historian. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map the changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century through to the present day. In today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Dr. Megan Kelly, Associate Lecturer at the Open University, about her research on the emotional labour of acute nursing in Belfast during the Troubles. So, Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No worries. And uh, just to start off then, uh, could you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in researching this topic? Okay, so I did my undergrad degree at Queen's and that was in history. And then I did my MA at Queen's as well. And that was more of an interdisciplinary degree. It was in conflict transformation and social justice. And that was my first time beginning to continue to study history, but look at it from a sociological perspective. So I initially became really interested in women during the Troubles, organizations during the Troubles, And I had this real interest in how certain businesses and particularly people who worked in frontline work stayed neutral. So initially, I wanted to actually study the concept of neutrality during the Troubles. But then, you know, obviously you meet your supervisor and things changed and we realized that would be very difficult for someone to actually admit or that will be difficult to challenge, you know, the concept of neutrality in itself. So I guess in that conversation, initially with my supervisor, the idea of emotional management and emotional labor during the troubles was born. And the reason we wanted to look at the nurses in particular was because it hadn't really been done before in this way. So obviously nurses has, has been studied a lot over time, emotional labor and emotional challenges within nurses as well has been studied, but it's never been applied to specifically emergency care, acute care nurses in the few main hospitals in the front line of the trouble. So I guess there was a vacancy for it and I was naturally interested in it having come from those areas where then hospitals are. So that's how it started. That's fascinating. Sounds really interesting. I'm excited to find out more. <laughs> um, so on the back of that then, um, could you tell us what is emotional labour and how does it apply to nursing in the context of the troubles? Yeah, so to keep it brief, um, emotional labour gives attention to basically the emotional costs of carrying out various forms of work. Typically, that type of work will be front-facing so it could be maybe a retail assistant in a shop um one of the original emotional labor studies actually looked at air hostesses and it's really work that deals with an array of clients an array of customers but you're always face to face now there has been some work done on emotional labor within the call center environment and obviously you're not face to face but you're still having that one-to-one interaction with customers so The factors of emotional labor include deep acting, surface acting, and subsequently burnout. Now, I'll not go into it too much, um, but basically deep acting is the full realization of emotional labor. So that would be, um, just say, 
I was an air hostess and I knew I had to be smiley and happy in my role every day. I would really look deep inside myself and become that character to the point that I wouldn't switch off or on when I was in the role. I would step onto that plane and I would be the happy, bubbly character. Surface acting is not necessarily the opposite of that, but it's a less extreme version. So what I might do is be that bubbly, happy character, but then I might go talk to a colleague a few seconds later and say, oh, that that client was a nightmare. You know, so it's that immediate switch off, whereas deep acting, I guess, is goes beyond that. Um, and burnout really is when either of those things can no longer be performed, because after all, emotion is a performance in the workplace. And that's kind of something else that this PhD highlights. So. One of the quotes that I used actually in my PhD was nurses perform an exhaustive emotional labor, and this often leads to burnout and depression. And one of the things that people often ask me when um, I talk about burnout in the context of my research is, but is burnout not a psychological condition? How can you look at this from a sociological perspective? And especially since COVID, burnout within the workplace them kind of buzzwords of feeling distressed, disengaged, depressed even, is becoming a lot more prominent in the media. And we're recognizing that those who work in healthcare on the front line are those things because of the circumstances at the minute. So stay with me for now, but in my PhD, I do recognize that burnout is a psychological condition, but instead of looking at the symptoms of it, I like burnout to the likes of job satisfaction and well-being. So what makes this unique was I was considering the social variables that actually contribute to this and contribute to what emotional labor was used to avoid burnout, whether that was conscious or unconscious. So for example, a common tool of management in both COVID and the troubles nurses was that they relied on colleagues they relied on dark humor and in fact some of the quotations in today's media about nurses who worked during covid are so similar to those said by the nurses i interviewed so that was really interesting for me so i hope that answered your question no that was great it's so interesting um and you touched on that a little bit but why is it important to look at nursing from a sociological perspective Okay, so following from what I've kind of said previously, um, as I say, since COVID, people are becoming more aware of the stress within all healthcare, but within nursing in particular. And more and more studies are using emotional labour to explore nursing. However, few studies, I suppose, are interested in identifying the social triggers that lead to these emotional buzzwords such as fear, detachment, exhaustion. So nursing is actually one of those few professions in which emotional management and professional distance is required as part of their role. That's what they have to do in their job. Ironically, this coincides alongside images of nurses as angels and trainers, Florence Nightingale, empathetic. And it's this sort of disturbing equilibrium of emotional availability versus emotional distance. And I want to know the circumstances in which that was difficult or easy. So for example, 
maybe you're a mum or a dad that's a nurse so you find it naturally difficult to manage your emotions when nursing a sick child but if we consider those natural variables alongside the backdrop of the troubles we begin to ask deeper questions so was it difficult to nurse someone that hurt someone you knew was it difficult to nurse someone you were afraid of you know perhaps they um were a well-known figure in your community and to be fair I never expected the nurses to say yes it was difficult and sometimes they didn't instead it was the absence of those honest answers that the truth came out maybe they said we were all neutral but in the next sentence they might have said after this incident I cried to a colleague privately over tea so it was that emotional management versus that backdrop of a very difficult circumstance. And why was it the optimal time to share the narratives of nurses that work during the troubles? And how can this contribute to Northern Ireland's understandings of the past? So I think um, it's optimal for two reasons. When I started my PhD, COVID hadn't started. So I wrote my sort of final chapters in the midst of COVID. I had interviewed all of the nurses by that time. And that was amazing to me that I was seeing so much similarity in the nurses that were interviewed on TV. So I guess it's important to share stories like this from nurses in the past to see that, yes, we're making changes in how we treat healthcare staff, but so much is yet to be done. Why are they still having the same issues in terms of emotional support, our understanding of their role as they did during, you know, the 70s and 80s in Belfast. And in terms of Northern Ireland's past, I think it can contribute greatly simply because it's important to have inclusive narratives. So I don't explicitly state whether a nurse I interviewed was a Protestant or a Catholic, unless unless they tell me, unless it was relevant to a story that they had. You know, often if they had a, a certain first name, a patient might have been funny with them because they would have made assumptions about their background. So it was relevant then. But nurses, to an extent, are a very neutral organisation, a neutral group of people, and nobody's really going to hear the word nurse and think of a certain religious or political background. So it's important to share those stories as a means of moving forward and also um, encouraging other, you know, people to come forward with stories of the past. It's not just about that green versus orange dichotomy that we we often get stuck in. No, that sounds, yeah, that's fascinating. That sounds really good. And in terms of, you mentioned occupational culture. Yeah. Can I just ask, um, what is occupational culture and how does it apply to nursing? So occupational culture is basically um, the informal rules in the workplace of how you learn to do your job from colleagues. So there might be, you know, a set of factors, a set of rules that you have in being a podcaster, for example. But when you're talking to somebody else, and they say, oh, I've been doing this for a few years. Here, here's the tricks of the trade in a way. So it's what you learn from your colleagues. And that's the kind of occupational culture that I was interested in. So as I mentioned earlier, nurses were essentially trained in a kind of 
professional distance, but they still had to be empathetic and, you know, there for their patients and families emotionally. And they learned to do that through this occupational culture. So they relied on their tight-knit community of colleagues. You know, during the troubles, there was um there was a more awareness of a hierarchy within healthcare. So you would have had like the sisters and they would have traditionally been a bit more strict. So you might've felt a little bit nervous and apprehensive to admit that you were feeling anxious about nursing a certain patient and you would have went to your colleague about that. And I, I would put any money that that's something that still happens today. And something that I find interesting in terms of occupational culture as well was the actual hospital structure itself. So a lot of nurses said to me that they felt that they could switch on and get ready for the day when they put on their uniform. And at at that time, some of them would have had them little capes and some of them described putting on the little capes and almost transforming into this character that was ready to tackle the day. Some of them also described walking along the kind of uh, hospital tunnels that connected um, their nurse placement houses to the actual hospital. And again, it was that mental, um, this is me stepping into that role now. So the actual aesthetic of the hospital and their uniform helped with a lot of that. And then another thing I noticed as well, and some of the stories they shared with me was that nurses at that time were constantly referred to as we nurse, like a we nurse in Belfast. And they all said it. And to the point that I ended up having a section in my PhD called we nurses, because it was such a common phrase that they all used. And they were seen as this certain type of character in the community they all shared experiences like you know being allowed to skip a queue in a shop because you were just a wee nurse or you know getting past certain checkpoints because they were just wee nurses and it was almost that feeling of being kind of untouchable kind of being heroic and seen as a certain superhero almost in the community that that helped them push through now that wasn't the experience for all of them but um it's those kind of different aspects of the occupational culture that help them cope and help them lean on one another. And in terms of like the occupational culture, obviously you said that they were chatting to each other and learning from each other. Um, what were some examples of the coping mechanisms used by nurses and did they share those as well? Yeah, so the biggest coping mechanism that I found, and that's still is true today during COVID-19 um, is relying on colleagues. And it's something that I have repeated a lot this afternoon, but also repeated a lot uh, during my PhD as well. So colleague support was so important during the troubles. And it was something as simple as, you know, during the troubles, there wasn't such a thing as a formal debrief. So after a certain major event, the events that we've seen on the news over the years, there wouldn't have been a moment where they would have been coached emotionally on how they dealt with that. You know, if you imagine that you had to work after a bomb blast, you would, you can't imagine how you would cope with that. They just went back to work. And a lot of them would have been called in to deal with those events if they weren't working that day. And most of them always talked about the joy of having a cup of tea 
after an event like that in the canteen with a colleague. And it seems extreme and strange that that was their coping mechanism to deal with such major events, but it, it worked for them. And it was during these cups of teas and informal chats that they, you know, began to use that dark humour that is very common in Belfast and Northern Ireland today. Not necessarily laughing at the events, but certainly um, making jokes with their colleagues about all these long shifts, always being wrecked, never getting a chance to settle down and kind of just having that rapport with their colleagues that they really um, kept to the hospital because something I found was that the nurses that I interviewed were very passionate um, about confidentiality. So even if they had nursed something that was literally on the news that day, they wouldn't have went home and spoke about it with their family. They would have kept names private. And again, it's hard to imagine because if it was something that was on the news and it was being shown, it might have broken that barrier and they would have felt that they could confide in their family, but they were very, very strict about that. And obviously that's just the way that rule is. So they would have relied on one another, relied on that kind of dark humour. And um, they tended to take bigger risks socially so a lot of them would have said things like you know I would have went to a different area of Belfast than I was from for a drink obviously that doesn't seem risky to us today but going into another community another religion another political background to where you were from for a party was a big thing then but they felt because of what they were witnessing day to day in the nine to five setting that nothing could be worse than that so they took risks socially and um a lot of the time, unfortunately, some of the coping mechanisms involve just keeping it in and not realizing that it was bad until several years later. You know, some for some of the nurses, it was the first time they spoke about it, you know, so that was very interesting as well. And whether or not with the nurses away, they were experiencing emotional labor and burnout. And did they feel victimized because of this? So interestingly, um for me, when I sent the participants, you know, the description of the project and what I would aim to look at from my PhD. It wasn't so much um, that I wanted to prove emotional labor and burnout because we have to assume they experienced it. And that was a big part of um, what I wrote within the conclusion chapter. But it was more so them mentioning things to me, such as their coping mechanisms or their emotional management, you know, was it, did they feel like they could cry over a certain event? Did they ever feel like, you know, they had to really push forward? And then me taking those interviews and saying, okay, that's an example of deep acting or surface acting and stuff like that. And initially what I wanted to do was really focus on this. So did you feel like a victim of the troubles? Because, you know, we are aware that, um, healthcare staff can be considered victims if they so want to. But a lot of the time they didn't want to be seen that way because they had seen the actual frontline victims. So they didn't feel worthy of that title. So um, what are some assumptions and stereotypes within nursing? So one of the things that I wanted to look at was the gender stereotypes within nursing. Now, I didn't have the capacity uh, to look at gender totally um, as a concept of either emotional labor or nursing. And there's research on gender associated with both of those topics. But something I did find was 
that the aesthetic of the male nurse didn't match the media assumptions of what a nurse should be. And unfortunately, that still rings true today. So as I mentioned earlier, nurses were typically seen as Florence Nightingale characters, angels without wings. And these are the buzzwords that the media uses again still today. And that didn't really suit what a male nurse was. Now, of course, they were still trained in the same things that the female nurses were. But when I interviewed some male nurses, they admitted that they felt a pressure to go into psychiatry and go into those more behind the scenes roles. Some of them quickly moved to management after their career highlights. And yeah, they felt that they didn't really suit the assumptions that people wanted nurses to be. And research today considers some assumptions about male nurses' sexuality. And also some female patients and male patients don't want male nurses to, to like touch them in that way that you have to when you're dressing a patient, for example, or that sort of thing. So male nurses really struggled with that. And that was something that is true in both COVID and the Troubles research. So that was something that came through in my interviews with the male nurses. And as an oral historian, um, I've got to ask, uh, what were some of the most striking stories from your research? So I was very lucky to interview a group of nurses that nursed Bloody Sunday. And for me, that was a real privilege because some of them said it was the first and only time they would talk about it. Or some of them said, you know, we've talked about this this before, but this will be the last time. So for me, that was really striking because it wasn't the geographical area that I was focusing on for my PhD, but I felt I can't do a PhD about nursing during the Troubles and not include this. Um, so I allowed myself to consider some surrounding areas, such as the Oma Bomb and Body Sunday and incidents like that. So it still looked at emotional labour and Body Sunday, but it didn't necessarily need to have the rigidity of the frontline hospitals in Belfast. And not all of them were acute care nurses either. So some of the things that came up during the Body Sunday interview was a lot of the nurses who worked on that day weren't actually working. So obviously dairy small and when Body Sunday happened, some of the nurses ran out of their houses and were immediately helping those in their community. So they were nursing on the streets of Derry and they said they just jumped into that role immediately. And all of them agreed that they weren't afraid. They just knew that that was what they needed to do. And that was something again that came up with other nurses I interviewed, that pressure to help your community. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but just say, you know, a certain nurse had nursed somebody that was actually I'll tell you this as a side note before I go into the body Sunday thing in further detail so I interviewed a nurse who admitted um that he had nursed somebody that was I guess the enemy of his community and he was then asked to leave his community because of this and this um was really apparent in some of the other interviews as well but 
turn back to the bloody Sunday, they felt that they were just helping everybody who was there. It didn't matter who you were from or who you were. And some of the things that came up in that interview was it was the first time for some of them nurses that they realized that they had all the physical and clinical skills to deal with these patients, but they had no skills to look after patient well-being. So, you know, these this like dairy AE was filled with victims of Bloody Sunday and their families waiting for news. And for some of these nurses, it was the first time they had to really think about how do you break news to so many people in one evening? And they weren't skilled in that. And a lot of them did things like they didn't want to look at the names of the patients that were coming in. They didn't want to look at too much detail because they knew they would get emotionally involved and upset and some of them unfortunately admitted that years later they found out that decisions were made about amputations and different things like that that arguably shouldn't have been they felt that this was due to maybe the background of the patients they they obviously have no proof of this but they realized things that years later that maybe some things happened on that day with survivors that was because of discrimination. So it seemed like that day was an eye-opener to subtle discrimination with, within nurses and patients, um, their lack of training for in well-being, and just the importance of that confidentiality to the extreme. So we, they were going home that night to the, to the news of Body Sunday, continuing to break to people, and they had to just sit silent. And some of them actually totally misremembered the day. I had a nurse who said, oh, I was here and I got the car to here. And her colleague said, no, you weren't. You were here. And then she had said, well, actually, funny you should say that because I had like a blackout due to the trauma of it. And she totally misremembers the day. Um, so, yeah, for me, that was just a kind of real eye-opener to the reality of working during a major event like that. But interestingly, they still use the same tools as nurses who worked in every day of the troubles, you know. Um, so, yeah, that was a real eye-opener to me. Yeah, no, definitely. So many things that you don't even think about or consider, you know. Yeah. Um, and are there any striking comparisons between nursing during the troubles and nursing during COVID because you mentioned a little bit that there were some similarities that came through um, yeah so could you expand on that a little bit so again like one of the major things that kept coming through for me which became um a big section of my PhD was the reliance on colleagues and the disconnect between formal and informal training i.e the occupational culture so that still stands the test of time today however I think since COVID especially we as a public are more involved in the nurses' needs. It's one of the first times in history where a pandemic is unfolding to the healthcare at the same time as it's unfolding to the public. And that's the same as the troubles. They couldn't predict the events, you know, just as much as the public couldn't. We're finding things out at the same time as they are. And for example, a nurse in terms of COVID was recorded saying it's an experience I would compare to a world war. So society knows that we need to do more, provide more resources for well-being support in the early stages of training, especially. 
because there's some shock in statistics, you know, back in the early 2000s um, and right into the late 2000s that student nurses were leaving, you know, maybe like two years or so after their, tra- their training began. Now, I would need to get the statistics for you exactly, but too many people were leaving and we have to assume that was down to a lack of support. So, you know, we need to make sure that studies like this continue to shine a light on that. Like they shouldn't have to rely on their colleagues or occupational culture in that way to figure out how to manage their emotional um, emotional performances in the workplace. Um, so hopefully if there was earlier intervention into what was required of a nurse emotionally and how we could train them for that, it would help the workforce adapt better to something unexpected like COVID, you know. Um, so, yeah. And how do you think your research can help the nursing today? Have you had a look into that? So, yeah, again, just following on from the previous answer, I think uh, obviously there's a lot um, of interest at the minute, particularly in the NHS, about the need for a pay rise. Um, and as I say, the public are becoming more aware of what a nurse actually does. It's not sitting beside the bedside with a cold face cloth on the patient's head that it maybe was in the very, very early 20th century, you know, late 19th century. It's not, that's not the way it is anymore. So recognizing the nurse's role in the front line is very important and recognizing that something needs to change within the the training itself to make the role more appealing and not just, you know, get the training, but figure out the well-being stuff on your own. That needs to be more integral to, to the job. And hopefully studies like this can remind them that their job is extremely important and we as the public appreciate that, you know. And that's it. No, definitely. You've convinced me anyway, definitely. <laughs> um, like, yeah, it's really important work. Um, thank you so much for your no time. That was amazing. So fascinating. Thank you. Um, for more information and to read articles related to today's episode, along with others related to the series, you can visit our website at www.epidemic-belfast.com.